If you have yet to listen to Intro to Lager, Part 1, then turn back now. Here be dragons, ye be not ready for what is to come. However, if you have listened to Part 1 of Intro to Lager, then continue on. You have the talisman. You may now open the door and cross the valley of death and gain the crown of a basic knowledge of lager. Please enjoy Part 2 of Intro to Lager by Time at the Bar. So, round about this time as well, we've got the beer in Bohemia, so that's modern day Czech Republic, uh, it's, it's predominantly top fermented dark beer. But some problems are starting to occur, and some of the sort of again back to what I mentioned earlier, burgers were starting to have problems with the quality of the beer, and they were starting to make some pretty hefty changes. Um, but slightly prior to that huge change happening in the Czech Republic, the big big breakthrough in brewing of lager, full stop, um, was that. The two gentlemen we mentioned before, Dreher and uh, Sadelmeyer. Those sexy those, spies. Those S- yeah, so you could have, like, it's one of them's Bond and the other one is... See, in my head, I'm already casting Aidan Turner and... Oh, uh, I thought so, yeah, yeah. Who do we reckon? Tom Hardy? Ooh, Tom Hardy, yeah. Can... I haven't seen a picture of these men. I don't know what they look like, but well, these are the sexy the men in my head right now. I mean, I don't know why you think they were sexy, but I'm I just, I, I assume they were. They were born into good stock, so they, yeah. mu- they must have been all right. <laughs> um, but yeah, both of them, <clears throat> with their knowledge, went to their respective breweries um, and made the first of two different styles of beer. And they both were at the same time saying that this is what this is. And it was a Viennese style called Vienna, Vienna style lager okay. and a sort of amber a similar take on it and they for a while he said it was the Viennese style here made in Munich uh, called Martin. Martin. now Martin is a term that is older than this okay so Martin had been used before to uh, define um, beers that were made in the March and were obviously lagered or kept or stored over that period of time. It probably goes back a lot further than the understanding of lager. Uh, it was it was already being used commonly in Aust- Austria to define a certain strength of beer, even. So it wasn't. Oh, okay. It was irrespective of the uh, what season it was brewed in. Um, so but like... that's these are all those little bits of information that yeah. have sort of hung over. So someone originally would have said these are these strong beers that were brewed in March. Now we're making them out of season, and they're this strong, and this this is now what a Martin is, and that term is sort of appropriated and reutilised. But when Sadelmeyer made the Martin, undoubtedly he made it in this particular amber style, and from then on it was made in the March as that style of beer. So that's 1841. Skip forwards one year. Drastic things are happening in the Czech Republic. Oh God! So these it's are all kicking off now, it, isn't it? It's these it's these feisty burgers again. They're they're going crazy. Fucking burgers! <laughs> so I knew the, they were trouble. So the burgers. The moment you told me about them. Oh, I know. Yeah, they're they're dodgy fellas. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the burgers of um, of Pilsen, which is a town in uh, in the Czech Republic, um, have had such problems with the quality of the beer that they actually 
before this date, they drag all the brewers out and they drag all the beer out and they crack it open and ditch it all over the town, uh, the town square. Why? Because they say this is not up to snuff. <gasps> this is not good enough. It's so only they... good for cleaning the streets. So, yeah, so they, they throw it all away. Sacred. And it's in that moment that they decide, instead of having all these different little breweries, they're going to set up their own burger-owned brewery. So it's going to be owned by certain set of the people. All right. And it's, you know, this is we're going to be proud of this. This is going to be our special thing. So they, they put to, to task a few corporate spies as well to go and steal information. And they also then choose... I love the amount of espionage that goes oh, on in the 1800s. Yeah. 1800s is mad for espionage. <laughs> Beer espionage. I think we've got a series of films in our hands. Yeah. Not necessarily all about brewers, but, you know, the amount of inventions that people go, quick, sneak over there and find out how they make the spinning jenny. Ooh. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that came why from Why that one? Why did that... The spinning jenny. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so they also choose as part of this huge shake-up and this new, newly established brewery to hire a Bavarian because for some reason they thought he must be the best. Well, this is a man who his own father referred to as the rudest man, I think, in Bavaria. Uh, but a man named um, Joseph Grohl, um, and he produced two two beers when the brewery first opened, both pale styles of lager the first truly pale and when i say that i mean we're talking golden rather than martin amber so in one year this huge break breakthrough so they had initially the first two brews that were made were made with english malt so they were actually bringing malt over from the uk to use but afterwards what they did is they had established an english style maltings in pilsen to create their beer with so they had gone to all the all the lengths and depths of the earth to find out how they were going to make this new delicious beer and it's often talked about as being uh, an accident that you know somehow it just happened to be pale and you know this that, oh the no we tripped and fell and, and it was pale delicious pale lager oh no <laughs> whatever will we do um, but they made this lovely, clear, pale lager. But now, really, they weren't like you know sending spies over to the UK, and they were seeing. Oh, the I mean, they were definitely and... trying to achieve a pale lager, and I think on top of that, the so the natural resources of the land, so the water supply, being the key one, were just absolutely ideal for this type of brewing. They were very, very soft. So low, low content of, not hard water, like say we're here again, we're in Bristol, hard water, lots of hard water. They, didn't, they had really, really very soft water. So that contributed also to a lack of pickup of colour in the brewing process. Just this very soft water source. And that contributed to the end product being very soft and very rounded. And it's why this beer style went on to dominate the world is that this it looked absolutely beautiful this beautiful pale yellow colored beer um, and it had this amazing local hop in it called well we now talk about as Saza hops um, or from, from Saza but it's uh, I think the term is Zatech which is the area that um, the, the hops come from and they have this wonderful sort of lemon balm, grassy, spicy, 
beautiful aroma to them that is incredibly distinct. Um, and so, you know, this beer went into the market and it just absolutely blew people away, I think. And from there on in, the next few steps in which we're going to talk about is just people trying to effectively recreate recreate this. that or recreate it or make a style of beer that sort of doffed its hat, you know, to that. Because even later on, you know, the... Um, the monks uh, made when they made uh, the Vesmal triple. They were making that because they wanted to to fight against this 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 desire for everybody to drink pale beer. So they were like, "Well, we have to make a pale style of beer to you know do the same thing." So it really did just just absolutely snowball mm. and just took over completely. So what was this beer that became envy ah, so, of all so now I've the world? Chosen not to give it its name. Until this point, because I've mentioned the town. Yeah. And from that, most people would know what it is. But it's actually not called this. This is not this style of beer. The only beer that can be called this this particular beer name is Pilsner Urkel. Ah. Because it's made in the town of Pilsen, realistically, the only beer that is a Pilsner, so a beer from Pilsen, is... Pilsner Urkel. Is this similar to how Oktoberfest beers can only be from Munich? I mean, that's more of a choice, I think, because there's a council in Munich that decide every year what that beer is going to, you know, to be. They they will constantly change. It's why we ended up with the golden coloured sort of modern Oktoberfest beer. They have controlled where that beer is made. They've said, oh, it can only come from this area of Munich. So it's more like how Stilton can only technically come from a couple of places, Colston Bassett and Crop- yeah. Cropwell Bishop. But can't come from... Uh, Stilton. Stilton, yeah. The Stilton <laughs> you get from Stilton is not Stilton, it's no. Ditchelton, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think there's, I think it's also a difference in, in process for, oh, for different yeah. styles. But anyway. Anyway, my point um, is... <laughs> yeah. It's because realistically, you know, like somebody who comes from Bristol is a Bristolian. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't call yourself a Bristolian if you were from Edinburgh. No. It's sort of that. So this style now that everyone talks about, Pilsner, is not really that. In fact, actually what it is, is a take on that. Anyway, so the style itself is actually called in Czech Republic. You have two styles, that, as I said, that initially made. One is called Svetli Vichepni. And the other one's called Svetli Lejak. Uh, and they are the the two pale styles of of lager that we now call sort of Pilsner. There's one that's a little bit lower ABV and there's one that's a little higher ABV. So, Schnetli... Yeah. Um No, not quite. No. Svetli. Svetli. Lejak. Lejak. And Svetli. Svetli. Vichepni. Vichepni. Now, the thing is, I'm doing this and telling you how it's said, and it's probably all wrong. We'll probably get somebody Well, on. if someone could correct us, <laughs> maybe send us an audio clip of you, how you're supposed to say it. And say, but you bloody English, you, you fucking idiots. English scumbags. <laughs> That's a bit harsh, I think. I don't imagine they'd be quite as horrible as that. Um, but, yeah, so... You can see why people refer to it as Pilsner, though, because how <laughs> difficult is it to say that? Particularly if you're yeah. foreign bastards like us who can't bloody pronounce anything. Well, also, anything. the real reason that it, it ended up being like that is because of the brewery, Pilsner, Herkel, which is not what the brewery is called. No. That is basically the, 
the name of the beer brand that it's also named by the Germans. And Pilsner means a person from Pilsen, it mean doesn't it? a person from Pilsen or as it is something from Pilsen. So a thing. A and Urkel is uh basically means from the original source. Oh. So you've got Pilsen style beer from the original source. Yeah. So that is the the originator of this this modern obsession with pale, easy drinking lager that is swept across the world. And I think to go along with that, we should probably have a drink. Yes, we should. So, should we talk about this beer? Well, um, we're about we're to we're about to open a pilsner itself. But before that, we've just been drinking. Secretly, we paused and snuck off to grab a Martzen and have a little schnifter of that. So the one we have today is Rothausbrau. Yep. Uh, Eiszapfel. Eiszapfel, yeah. Eiszapfel, which means ice beer? Ice something? Oh, good question. Zapfel, I always think, is going to be some type of fruit, but I don't think I know, it always makes me think of apple. Yeah. Um... Um, so, yeah, this, um, well, I mean, you could talk a little bit about it, I'm sure. Uh, you say that just because I've been drinking it while you've been talking. Oh, yeah, but so give me your opinion on I have a bit of a cold, so I'm not doing my best oh, tasting I right see. now. I'm, I'm dodging that bullet, hoping it? it's not COVID, but I think the thing with this one is, based on what you've been describing, we're talking about this as a Martzen. It's labelled as a Martzen on the back of the beer, but it's a lot lighter in colour than I was expecting. I was expecting, like, an amber kind of, I mean, I suppose maybe if we squared it up against the Keller beer, it's maybe a bit more amber, but it's very light, very clean, but a richer body, I'd say. Yeah, and I think that's probably sort of accurate to what Martin um, style beers have. They're often characterised by their sort of slightly ambery colour. I mean, this one's definitely on the paler end of that scale um, and is probably more akin to a Hellas, but... So this is 5.6%, again, Yeah, so that's probably about, about right for the traditional... Uh, for the traditional Martin. Yeah, the strength of, the, of a traditional Martin, anyway. Um, and it's normally characterised by a little bit of tidy bit of toastiness and um, a very nice sort of mellow, sweet sort of, um, as you said, white doughy, bready sort of flavour to it. And, you know, and it is, it's just a great chuggable beer. And it's the same with the sort of Viennese style, the Vienna style lager, um, which again, we really didn't, you know, talk about all that much. But that's purely because, first of all, we're not drinking it. And secondly, you know, I can't, keep going on forever going on we and can't on and drink on and on. every single <laughs> style of lager there is otherwise this podcast will stop rather abruptly because we'll both keel over yeah um so <laughs> it's best to try and limit ourselves a little bit we've tried to give a broad range but also make sure that we're not drinking everything Okay, so we're going to move straight on from the Martin that we were just tasting to our Pilsner, which is a Czech Pilsner, but it's not Pilsner Urkel. Yeah, absolutely. And um, as we were talking about before, there is a different name for these styles of beer than just Pilsner. But for the sake of keeping it simple for everybody, we will call this Pilsner. 
Um, and what we've actually got here is Budweiser, Budvar. 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 So this is different from the Budweiser that you know uh, from America. The it is indeed. Brown. The wrangle for the name, though, goes on. They've, uh. they've been at war for forever and a day over who owns the name. Um, and again, as we said about Pilsner, Budweiser, technically a Budweiser is somebody from the town of Budweiss, as the Germans would call it, or Budiavice. Um And so technically the people and the beer are exports of Budweiss, so they are Budweisers. Um, but I do believe in, in, and I'll probably put some people's nose out of joint with saying this, but when Anheuser-Busch, uh, as it is now, um, when it was founded by um, the Anheuser family, he originally, when he first made a beer called Budweiser, it was actually named that before Budweiser Budvar was called oh. this. That is a uh, But then it's also, it's equally going to be a tenuous potential uh, fact in the, set, in the sense that we're talking about the Germanic name. Yeah. And so the Germans might have been calling it Budweiser for a long time. Uh, and so that name might have existed maybe all in conversation and, you know, and but not actually being on a label. Um, so difficult to really say that one. But yeah, we are drinking Budweiser Budvar. Which we got from our local Aldi. We did indeed, <laughs> yeah. We went all the way out to our local Aldi and bought the finest quality 12-pack. Yes. <laughs> um, of course, we do encourage you all to frequent your local bottle shop, wherever that may be, and give them your business. But also, there are supermarkets that are offering interesting beer ranges now. Indeed, there are, yeah. Um, so, yeah, as a style of beer, it really does swing quite a bit from the, sort of, you know, the Pilsner Urquell, which is a bit sort of uh, richer and a bit more slight, sort of honey, sweet, sort of bready um, aroma to it. Along with that beautiful Saza spicy lemon balm, sort of lemon drops sort of uh, aroma as well. Um, this one's a little bit, I guess you'd say crisper in the mouthfeel. And again, with a, that's carbonation as well. But we're not drinking Urkel at the same time, so I couldn't possibly. Mm, oh, it would be good to have a little them. side by side at mm. some point. But yeah, again, clear golden, straw coloured. Um, it still has some of that sort of honey sweet uh, aroma, but it's more that sort of bready, um, rich, sort of spicy and floral and herbal hop character that it's got. I tell you, yeah, really herbal this it's one in comparison a lot more to herbal, isn't the it? Uh, the Calabir or the Martin that we've been drinking. Yeah, and then it's got that just little hint of sulphur that just carries it, and then you can sort of smell a little bit of toasted. Aroma on there as well, just mm. lightly toasted. Um, again, the the flavour is sort of um, not incredibly rich, and normally I think a lot of true sort of uh, Czech Pilsner style beers or Švetli Vychepni or the Švetli Lejak are um, you know, a little bit more sort of you know notes of caramel and honey in there. Um, this one really is a lot more sort of soft and it really highlights its mineral character. I think it's a little bit drier in the finish as well. Um, and it's sort of a medium. It's quite, almost quite a light body for a Czech Pilsner as well. But it's difficult to say because if you've never had 
Czech Pilsner style beers on draft in Czech Republic, then it's very difficult to actually say this is what that should taste like because it really probably isn't. Um, you know, people have had things like Stara Praman and you know the Budweiser Budvar and Pilsner Kell. Um, but they're not the same in bottle as they would be, say, if they're in their more traditional, unfil potentially unfiltered. But the way that they serve draft beer in the Czech Republic is often with a favour to knocking out some of the carbonation to make you know a nice big pillowy white head on top of it. Um, so I think when you try it that way, you'd really probably appreciate some of those more rounded, pat, you know, the rounded palate and the softer mouthfeel than uh, you do with the prickly carbonation cutting its ribbons. But yeah, still a very good beer. Still a very, very clean, delicious, well-made beer. A sinkable, smashable. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, in contrast to the, the beer style that probably dominated the world more than, than the Czech style is actually the... German style, um, which again just gets referred to as Pilsner, um, but more commonly Pils, Pils to yeah. you know to differentiate anyway, and that's what I think predominantly has inspired uh, countries like the US to make their styles of beer. You know these very incredibly pale, incredibly flavourless, well attenuated, dry easy-going lagers that you know, just you could crush all day long, and I think that's what they've gone for. And it is more in that style, where it is often sort of drier, a little bit more assertive bitterness, um, and ultimately that's been edited out in the sort of US-appropriated uh, versions, but it's that a little bit more hop character in the bitterness more than anything else. Um, so, <clears throat> back to back to our very long... History. To the timeline. Timeline. Time <laughs> Say that every time. <laughs> time um, so, yeah, the first Vienna Marsen styles have been made. The um, first Pilsen style beer has been made. Um, just also important to, to register this little bit of information that obviously the Oktoberfest had been go continuing to go that whole period of time. And it ran, you know, it's been running almost annually ever since 1810. It's sort of, I think it's only had, what is it, um, two dozen or so occasions where it's not run, I think. Mm. Oh, I uh, posted about this on our was Instagram. Is it 24 the other day. times? Or I think it's like that. 20. Yeah. Something so, in the 20s. So it's only been anyway. cancelled or bypassed some two dozen times or so. And the last time, other than this year because of coronavirus, the last time was the Second World War. Absolutely, So it's yeah. had quite a good chunk of time without being It's had a good run. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I would say like it's over, but... It's, had a it's good over, run. it's gone! But so, within 40 years of that first festival taking place, the you know, the standard beer that would have been at that would be the sort of Munich brown beers and dunkles that were there. Um, and so the year that uh, Gabriel Seidemeyer... Um, first mastered the Martzen style lager he released it straight away into the festival so that also would have been a huge change because people did come from a bit further around to try those beers and also that switch up you know the the people were really starting to crave paler beers and so when Martzen came out that would have changed very much changed fundamentally how people of Munich were drinking uh, you know they weren't drinking they started to drink less of the house Dunkel, if you like, and it is. It was like it just dominated. Um, 
So a couple of other incredible sort of um, technological advancements that took place and uh, some innovative work and some great discoveries. We start kick off with Czech chemist, very apt considering we're drinking a nice Czech lager. Czech chemist Carl Balling invented the hydrometer, which allowed uh, the brewers to measure for the first time uh, the extract strength of the beer, um, which meant that they could measure how much sort of potential, well, how much sugar they had. Yes, if you're and not a brewer. How much, how much it could be uh, fermented, converted um, into, into ethanol, and yeah. so therefore how alcoholic the beer might be later on. It meant that they could work out what, how many bags of, you know, malt and what have have you they put in and therefore just make a more consistent product um which and give a, a, a better estimate of what kind of percentage they were going to come out with at the end yeah kind which of i think became more important later on because up until that point really you didn't have to say how alcoholic something was hmm. you would say how much initial sugar was in it and that was yeah. more important and still in czech republic to this day there's a lot the the balling scale is pretty well utilised still, and you can see something that says 10 degrees balling on the board. And it doesn't tell you the ABV. Um, oh. And I think in some places they, they can be except ex exception from, um, from different types of alcohol um, branding laws. But generally, um, there's an understanding as to roughly how strong they will be. So therefore, you know, you go with a sort of a guesstimate in your mind. But yeah, obviously, depending on how much uh, yeast converts sugar into ethanol, then some of those beers could either be quite, quite big-bodied and not and quite sweet and not so alcoholic, or they could be quite alcoholic and quite dry and you know a lot, lot less residual sugar. So quite an important thing for people to be able to know because they could utilize it from the start to the finish. You could work out how much sugar you had at the beginning and how much you had at the end, and therefore accurately being able to work out what you how much ethanol you should theoretically have so <clears throat> that was 1843 moving on to 1860 and as i said we're probably not going to talk much about um realistically where lager is today but this one is a nod to that uh german immigrant eberhard anheuser uh started a small brewery in st louis or St. Louis, I think it is, isn't it? Missouri, which uh, now, after various buyouts and takeovers, uh, is part of the biggest brewery in the world. The biggest brewery in the world is... AB InBev. So Anheuser-Busch, eventually, and that's the your, your sort of, you know, AB. Um, InBev was Interbrew, and... Um, ooh, Bev is from something else. I, I always just assumed it meant beverages. <laughs> yeah, but it comes from a specific... So it, initially you've got the sort of like the different parties. That, so Inter, Inter, Interbrew was one yeah. company yeah. and something beverages or whatever was another. It might have even been like South American beverages. So basically it's a big, big company that's owned by like partly Belgian, partly uh, South American and, and, and partly obviously US but with huge amounts of people involved in it. But the reason it's interesting, obviously, is that, you know, in the US we've got these, uh, you know, lagers are being brewed because you're getting a huge amount of uh, immigration from sort of from Germany and Austria and the Czech Republic. And in fact, actually, if you really want to try a mod, you know, the closest thing you can try to a Vienna beer, style beer these days, is actually not in Vienna. 
most of it's died out. In fact, it's changed. It's got sweeter, or it's been you know you know they've taken the color out of it. and It's changed a lot. Um, it's actually in places like Mexico, where there was a huge influx of Austrian um, immigrants coming in who wanted to brew those styles, and so actually that sort of lives on slightly in beers like sort of the Modelo, some of the Modelo range, and that's one of them is often referred to as a Dunkelin style, Negro Modelo, but probably has a lot in common with um, with a Vienna style lager. A little bit off the uh, off the point there, but there we go. Um, but yeah, so AB InBev, um, and yeah, so they, they had a flagship beer at the time, which was called Budweiser, which is obviously, there you go, we are drinking Budweiser. Oh no, we're not, it's not the oh, same whoops, beer. Oh, whoops, wrong one. Mm. So... As I said before, you know, Budweiss, meaning someone from the town of Budweiss. Um, but like Anheuser, Anheuser, and then later when it became Anheuser-Busch, uh, a lot of American lager brands still have their origins in the European immigrants that, you know, set them up, or, you know, people in and around uh, that sort of industry. So you've, you've got you've got Pabst, uh, was founded by a German immigrant, um, Whose daughter? So his daughter married a, a gentleman called Frederick Paps, who was also a German brewer. So that's where you get that name from. You had uh, Frederick Müller, who set up Miller. Obviously, ang anglicised his name, um, and the list goes on. Um, and so a lot of the you know American market that, that we look at today still really just sort of wears its heart on its sleeve as to where those people came from originally and what the what the styles of beer that they made. And that's why they've they've maintained that sort of massive. Um, a massive draw for the people. 1872. The Franziskaner Leist Brewery, which was owned by Joseph Sadelmeyer. Another Sadelmeyer? Another Sadelmeyer. Brother of <gasps> Gabriel Sadelmeyer, the second, who, uh, well, Gabriel actually bought out Joseph Sadelmeyer from the Spartan Brewery originally. I mean, this is a up and up bloody soap opera, isn't oh, yeah, it? It is indeed. You know, this is like co Kardashian shit. Corporate espionage. Corporate. Corporate, corporate <laughs> espionage. <laughs> and then, yeah, everyone just you know buying each other out, and you know, probably I don't know, they probably sleep on each other. Oh, no, it's a good Catholic country that point, but um, <laughs> anyway. Um, so he had bought his brother out of the Spartan Brewery many years before, um, but at this point. His Francis Carner Leist Brewery, Joseph uh, Sedelmeyer is doing very well, and he releases and introduces the Vienna Martin style of lager to the Oktoberfest, um, which becomes known or referred to as the Oktoberfest beer. So although in 1841, Gabriel Sedelmeyer had released a Martin beer, this is like a refinement of that process. He's made it slightly stronger. He's made a few changes to the colour and to the hop aroma, etc., etc., and released a Martin-style fest beer, if you like. So that's the first proper, what was originally called the Oktoberfest beer. 1873 to 1878, uh, somewhere in there, somewhere in that period of time, Carl von Linder was doing a lot of work with... Um, uh, he worked, in fact, with several of the breweries, closely with several of the breweries, to try um, and uh, engineer a form of refrigeration. So he's a German scientist and engineer, um, and he, so he studied and developed this, in, as I say, in conjunction with several breweries that allowed, allowed him to do it in their breweries, because they wanted the newest equipment and the new, you know, all bang up to date and all mod cons. 
But also because it meant that somebody would bankroll him doing it because mm-hmm. to be able to afford to do it was going to be too costly. So, yeah, he develops and invents the first mechanical refrigeration, um, which I believe actually was predominantly bankrolled by Gabriel Sodomar again, of the Spartan Brewery. They did everything, really, didn't they? Well, yeah, they did make massive changes. Um, you know, and that, that's a great example. You know, to have the refrigeration meant that you could brew throughout the summer as well because you didn't have those you know, those restrictions, and so that did change. Um, it also meant you have better control over you know the temperatures that you are fermenting at and the temperatures that you are storing and cooling at. Realistically, you didn't have to have a giant cellar under a hill uh, <laughs> car- you know, carved out with all those man hours. You could do it in a building and have refrigeration do all that Which work Which also you. really must have helped to um, refine the process and, um, and help with the spread of lager. Oh yeah, definitely. 100%. But also, you know, you had then that reliable product as well. It was going to be even more reliable than when you just went put it into a cave. You know what? And it wouldn't be seasonal either. No. So you don't have you don't have any of those problems anymore. They're they're sort of been taken away from you. So and that did change the ways in which breweries could you know store and ferment their their beers and 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 as you say, really, that is what drove beer to spread throughout Europe initially. So uh, another part of that. Sort of process of the the north becoming slightly more lager centric is places like Dort- or Dortmund was one of the, I think the first to go and to to come out with what is effectively a, like a an export Hellas, um, but it is called Dortmunder style lager, and it's sort of more akin to a pilsner but with more of the body of like the Hellas. So it sort of takes on that approach by being slightly stronger uh, and a little bit more bitter because again they had harder water. But the reason that is important is because, you know, it's within 30 miles of Cologne and places like that that maintained an ale culture. They're all part of that old Hanseatic area that were ale culture. So the whole of that sort of northern band of Germany was ale. And suddenly that was really changing at such an accelerated rate. So 1876, we have uh, Louis Pasteur. Very important man. An incredibly important man, a, a name that so many people will know uh, because he's not just pertaining to, to brewing, but he did a lot of remarkable things for the world at large, including including the breweries. Yes. But he published a, 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 a sort of a text at this time called L'Etude sur la bière. Um, I think he'd also been employed by the French government to do one on wine as well. Mm. And so there's a lot of stuff about um, effectively cleanliness and sort of the, the way that microbes work and uh, bacterium as well but he within this text he explained the reproduction and metabolism of yeast now that's all heavy stuff to lay upon people but um, effectively he was able to identify bacterial spoilage um, of beer and and therefore introduced a process that would prevent that from happening um, so this process, obviously named after him, as all good inventors do, they have the the mm-hmm. right r- royal ego that you need to to do this <laughs> and go. What should we call this incredible invention? We'll call it pasteurisation. Yeah, well, and Louis Pasteur was also sort of associated with other breweries as well. He was employed by several breweries in France to do various bits and bobs, and then I think he was also employed at one point by Carlsberg. So yeah, he invented the process of pasteurisation. So it's a brilliant invention. Also allowed, obviously, that re- again reliability of products. Another thing that just meant 
you could ship this all the way around the world and it's not going to blow up on someone's face. So I also mentioned that Lou Pasteur had done some work with Carlsberg um, and sort of takes me neatly onto my point now, which is, you know, within sort of a few years of that, uh, Emil Christian Hansen, who's a Danish mycologist and fermentation physiologist uh, employed by Carlsberg, identified and classified cold bottom fermenting lager yeast strains. So as I say, cold because they work at those cooler temperatures. Yeah. And uh, so that's Saccharomyces, um, oft, it's often referred to as Saccharomyces carlsbergensis or Carls, uh, Saccharomyces uvarum, and sometimes referred to as Saccharomyces pastorianus after Louis Pasteur. Oh. Um, and it also identified and classified the warmer top fermenting AOE strains. So that's Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he isolated them. So he was able to select one strain out of all of the others and the importance that not only were you choosing one particular you know yeast cell but you're also able to choose you know effectively oh that's a really healthy one we'll go with that one and it and it will have these properties because if you real selective breeding so you could say you know this sample has three different lager yeast strains but we want to use that one because it it drops out of the beer quickly or it does this and so you're able to then get to the point where brewers are now where they choose their specific yeast strain for either the style of beer that they're making or to choose what you want as your house character. So at this point, it, sto- it stops being magic. It's no longer stops magic. It stops being pixie dust. Yeah. God's <laughs> no longer sort of breathing all over the beer and turn it into magic, <laughs> delicious shit face juice. <laughs> Um, anyway, so yeah, and brewers, you know, as a, as a direct result, were able to control their fermentations even even more so, and to, as I said, selectively pick out those characteristics that they wanted. Um, and this was also the point I think that the Spartan yeast strain ended up in the hands of Carlsberg. Now that's because Gabriel Sodelmai was actually friends with the founder of um, of Carlsberg. So I haven't really. Oh, so touched... it wasn't like he stole it. Then. No, and no. I haven't really touched on any of these things. But mm. Carlsberg then sort of you know take over in a way from where Spartan were as these um, innovators, and Carlsberg sort of drove that on. Now they took the Spartan yeast, isolated the strain they wanted, and that I think I believe is still the strain that they have to this day. Um, drama. There's so much drama. In so this. much, so much drama. <laughs> uh, so yeah, up next, 1890. Cornelius O'Sullivan, an Irish brewing chemist, uh, who was based in in Britain um, and worked at Bass. He was interested in all things, sort of the mashing process. So it's the first step in in sort of brewing, ultimately. Um, But he published his findings on on enzymes. So he'd done multiple years of research, um, and and he did that whilst he was head brewer at Bass and funded by Bass. Um, but he, he was able to outline how enzymes convert unfermentable starches into fermentable sugars during that mashing process. And obviously with the aid of thermometers and stuff, he was able to identify different temperatures in which those things were active or deactivated, the enzymes anyway. And so therefore how you could achieve different... Ah, so how you could achieve different results, how you could maybe make the most out of the malts that you were using. I mean, that's going to be a huge part of the drive for doing it, was to make sure you got your bang for your buck. Britain was generally a single uh, infusion mash. That's just one, you mash in once, so you add your malt 
malted barley and your other elements of your grist, you know, wheat or whatever it might be, with your hot water, and that's it. That's your one temperature, and you hit that. Um, other countries had multiple step infusions where you'd add a little bit here, and then you add a little bit more, and at different temperatures. But in Germany and in Czech Republic, what was more common was decoction, which is where you take a certain amount portion of that mash already, take it away, take it up to boiling point, and then add it back, which raises the overall temperature, denatures some of the enzymes, and also therefore gives you some of these more sort of Maillard um, characteristics and products in the brew. So you end up with some more of those honey, sort of biscuity sweet that you know flavors that come through. Just by even using one type of malt, you could end up with all these different complex flavours overlapping each other that are coming from that process. So it's also very interesting when people were able to apply the science, scientific knowledge behind how it was all working and this to what they were already doing through, you know, suck it and see sort of well, process. Well, exactly. This kind of folk brewing process that I find is what I find really fascinating is the fact that people will just... They were just going, hmm, what happens if we change this about the brewing process yeah. what happens if we just take a big hunk of the malt of, of the mash straight out and then yeah. heat it up separately and then put it back in what's going to happen like yeah, it's incredible isn't it to think that somebody at some point made that jump and then it became law to people yeah. you know l-o-r-e that, that's like, oh this is how minds. we do this this is yeah. uh, this is the written way to make this beer and that's what's amazing because in this we're highlighting the amount of times that scientists and physicists, mycologists, you know, physiologists are applying knowledge that they already have to a process and finding a new outcome. Mm. So you've now got the scientific knowledge behind technology and why something should be done this way. Before that, you've got generations and generations of it brilliance in the suck it and see format of science, which is we don't know why it does it, but just do it anyway because it works. And that's amazing to have got to that point. And, you know, we talk about the 1800s as the accelerated um, passage of, you know, technological advancement and, and knowledge. But really, if you think about the things that we were achieving before without writing anything down... And without or without any, any scientific backing for yeah. why they were doing things. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It is remarkable. So huge extra step in why the... You know, lager took over completely again. 1890, glassware starts to dominate across the whole of Europe. And so in Germany, it really took over from Steinware, which was the local sort of, you know, ceramic stoneware um, vessels for drinking out of. And I believe it was around about that time that it was introduced as well to the Oktoberfest as the... As the standard as the glass. Yeah. Drinkingware. Well, not standard, but was added to it, because, I mean, it would probably been still quite expensive, but... And this must this would have changed so much about the drinking experience of lager because in the same way that we've always known that British ales would have been very hazy and very yeah. unpleasant to look at, yeah, uh, very potentially, porridgey yeah. looking things, lager must have been quite similar at the time. Yeah, and we, as we're saying, we've seen them start to get more and more pale. Yeah. And that's because glassware has already been... Utilised, it has been in existence, and it is favoured by some people oh, already. Yeah, yeah. But it really now starts to become that dominant factor. P people are able to get it. It's become cheaper to produce, so you are now starting to see it widely spread across the. And whole the Germans of... are still like world 
renowned for their glassware as well. Absolutely, yes, exactly. And and the other thing of Germans though as well is they are great traditionalists. They love to hold on to certain traditions they have. So even now, it's one of the only countries you can go and drink out of ceramics. Yes. Because they still love uh, a oh, good love a, a good stein. Why weren't we drinking out of our ceramics today? Because we're drinking smaller measures so that we don't end up absolutely bingled. Uh, it doesn't stop me. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're, you're doing a lot of listening, patiently listening, Patient to, me, listening. to me twaddling on. <laughs> so then, that leads neatly into 1894. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spaten Brewery produces the first blonde, clear and golden lager Sexy. in Bavaria. Um, and so that is the forerunner to the, the modern Hellas, or to the Hellas anyway. Yeah. And pretty much puts the final nails in the coffin of the, the dominance of Bavaria's brown lagers or, you know, the Dunkels. Oh. Um, well, yeah, sad. But, I mean, they still tend to cling on, particularly in, in Munich. Mm. And, and there are other places. And as I said earlier, there are other dark lagers that still are in existence and continue to be made for a prolonged period of time. But it really did sort of just finish that off because it was now you've got you've got glassware you've got this delicious golden looking thing that was competing with all the biggest brands in the world and all the biggest you know like pale lagers in the world and yeah i think it put the final nail in the coffin you'd have had the martsen edging it out oh yeah it'd already been losing uh, and it, i think also the, the country started to experience you know i mean, we've talked a lot about germany here but I think a lot of sort of lager history probably ends up sitting squarely in Germany. But I think at that point, you are starting to see the influence from external countries probably is starting to have a massive effect on German drinking culture, which before it wasn't the same way, because I say they're traditionalists and, you know, or they were in Bavaria in particular. So that suddenly they have this external influence that is really pushing new sexy looking products at them and they're starting to bite back a little bit. Um, so, yeah. Um, 1906. Reinheit is made official law in the realm of Kaiser Wilhelm II. So, in spite of the fact that it had been called a law and it had dictated so much about brewing in Germany, mm-hmm. it was not officially a law. Ah, uh, it, it was officially a law, but it was not made official law in the realm of Kaiser Wilhelm. So that is not just in Bavaria. That's you know in um, other areas. That in, in sort of Germany as a whole, or like yes. yeah. But it still was not referred to as the Reinheitsgebot at this point. Uh, just to clarify and confuse my people. My God, the Reinheitsgebot is so confusing. We should have done a separate episode on it. I mean, it. we probably could one day, but I mean, I think people will be sick of hearing about Lager for a little bit. After yeah, this. I don't. Yeah, we're um, gonna give it a break after a while. But so yeah, that uh, was introduced in 1906. So we have cracked open another delicious beer. Possibly pretty much, best. pretty much in time for the for the the rounding up of this whole sort of saga. But it also coincides with our next our next date on the on the scale. Um, I think we will hammer out that date and then have a little talk about the beer that we're drinking next. Yes. So the date is in the diary. <laughs> It's 1928, oh, and Paulana Brewery has made the first Hellas. Oh, what? It is called, it's called a Hellas, and they have made the ultimate in the pale style of Bavarian lagers. Um, so again, probably not quite as pale as some of the Pilsners that we see today, but that sort of slightly golden straw 
pale golden straw colour, really. They do vary ever so slightly, but Paulan released that and it became the most popular beer style in Germany. So what was it that made it so popular? Because it was paler? Because it was Difficult to know. Or... Obviously, you've got, you've got your glassware now. Glassware's everywhere. You've got what effectively is the ultimate sort of session beer. Because it's 4.8% this one we're drinking yeah. now. So... And it's sessions like a dream. Like, yeah. So we are drinking Tegensee Hell. Oh, the king. From next to Lake Tegensee uh, in the south of Bavaria. Um, again, beautiful water in that. Um, I think one of the reasons that Hellis becomes so dominant is because I think you've had those in external international beers starting to make a, a dominance on the German market. And as I said in previous occasions to you personally, that the Rheinheitsgebot was law across that land, but obviously it didn't affect other breweries who were you know, sending beer in from outside of Germany. So you'd get these other beers coming in. Ah, yes, of course. So not that necessarily they had anything hugely deviating from that, but they weren't controlled in the same way. So there would be a competition at the tax point and at the price point. And so I think what they did is to make sure that theirs was still the ultimate <laughs> intaxable, high-quality local product. And it is because partially they have, they are so fundamentally s- strong-minded and strong-willed about it being them still that makes it. Not in a, a sort of an egotistical way, I have to do it all, but actually that it's more, it's a local product and, you know, it makes sense. It's a very, it's a very intelligent process to make something as local as possible, isn't it? So, yeah, and I think that's why it really just takes over and, you know, you've got this high-quality, high, highly sessionable, easy-going beer that just you can get everywhere. The weather's fine that summer, I'm sure, and everybody's going, oh, yeah, lager is great. Um, didn't do an accent there at all. No. I think because of that dominance of pale lager throughout the world, Germany had its answer ready, and this was it, the Helles. So let's have a little talk about... Tegensee Hell. This delicious hell. What what do you got to say about it, Maz? It's just such a treat. I, oh, but I'm with you. I think it's a, it's a really high quality hell or hellis. Um, just want to talk about that. Hell or hellis does mean pale or pale beer. Um, so th- you know that's another thing about that style is it is just it is called pale. It is their pale. That's, you know, like in Britain, it's the pale ale. It was the first sort of pale ale style beer. And, you know, I think that has a little sexy something as well. It's like, oh, pale. Mmm, I'll have a pale, please. I'll have a hell. I'll have a hellas. Which, again, is why I don't think people should be able to um, protect that name and say that it's their brand because hell or hellas means pale in German. It doesn't mean it's your brand and no one else can use it. Taking a slight dig at somebody there, but we won't say who yeah, that is. You either who. know or you don't know. So the smell to me is... So initially this might sound a bit odd, but freshly baked white bread with butter on it. Now, butter, we obviously associate with a beer fault, a brewing fault. Yes, and diacetyl, yeah. Diacetyl, but this... It's not that... It's just a creaminess, the smoothness comes straight through in, even into the nose. It's not just in the body of the beer. Absolutely, I agree. And I think it's more of a grainy, sweet maltiness yeah. that has that almost sort of buttery, sort of 
quality to it, but it isn't. It isn't buttery, is it's it? It's not butter. It's just the only way I can think to describe that. It's because you want it to go smoothest. on your lovely. Oh. I mean, I I think of you know high quality pretzels. There's ever so slightly <gasps> yes. baked toasted note. In the there. toasted outside the is soft, beautiful, and... soft, warm dough. Often oh. as well. delicious. Um, and then again, like the saltiness on top of the pretzel, they've got a little bit of a mineral sort of mm. bite in there as well. It goes very minerality. Nicely. That is uh, that cleanliness. That clean softness yeah i mean it's got something in common with like a, a mosel riesling where it has got that slight sort of um you know not the acidity of something like that but that minerality that almost slaty mineral quality to it which is great it's super incredibly refreshing bready but it's not too heavy yeah, it's, it's clean it's malty it's got this lovely soft dry finish it's got a subtle sort of so it's got a bite to it at the end spicy floral yeah kind of aroma Again, a little bit of a sort of like a herbal spice sort of um, restrained note in it. And again, the bitterness is there. It's very balanced. It balances out the sort of slightly sweet, grainy, malty, you know, like that, that sweet, grainy sort of flavour to it. Um, you know, it's not quite honey sweet. It's just got a little suggestion of that. But that hot bitterness just finishes it off beautifully. It doesn't linger too much. It's not too sweet. It's not too bitter. It just is. It's the ultimate in in balance. And this is a great example of its you know its style. So yeah, delicious, delicious, hellish. Hell. <laughs> Sexy hell. Sexy hell. <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, moving swiftly on with a lovely, lovely little baked piece of treat in our mouths. Um, we're going to talk about the next date on our timeline, and that is. Nine, circa, circa 1960. Um, so, so we're skipping quite far ahead now. Once that Hellas has been introduced into history, it dominates so Absolutely, hard, but it. also certain things get in the way a little bit. In you know, this 1928 we were talking about. Yeah. Things have interfered with the oh, world yeah, somewhat. Oh, yeah, that thing. What was that thing that happened I mean, after quite, 1928? It was a big thing, though, wasn't it? And it might have fucked Germany up quite a bit, it's... and it might have fucked France up and Belgium and the lot, UK. It did a lot even. of fucking, basically, it but not in Europe a positive way. hard. Yeah. It really did. Anyway, <laughs> skipping on from that particular event, um, you know, and, and you do have a, a sort of a fallow period as far as, you know, development and change. But it actually strangely leads to why beer is, you know, beer is solidified as the, the drink of the world and why lager and pale lager is the beer that everybody wants across the world. But I'll get onto that in a second. Circa 1960, hoppy northern German pills, sort of likes of uh, beers like Jever, as you might see in the market. I'm just trying to think of what people might know as a good example of that. But they take nearly 60% of that German beer market. So as the hell was developing and, you know, it was dominating in that period of time, suddenly, bang, the North German style pills, or Northern German they pills... They come crashing into the scene. They just smash it all up, so... Like you know, that but bad ex-boyfriend on his motorbike. It's still that, it's that pale, that pale beer that people want, and they just want, you know, it's that refinement as well. They're just taking off the sort of, maybe the softer, smoother edges of that and just make it a bit more angular. But it's also why I say, I'll go back to that point is all throughout post World War Two, um, you know, in the in Europe and in, in the US as well, but also in places like China and Japan, you're seeing a huge swing with industrial brewing. And the scale in which people are starting to brew, some of these established companies really, really starts to you know, fly and they get to seriously large volume. 
but it's also because you've got things coming into the market now you've got the ability to advertise on vehicles and then television starts to come in and and you know film and cinema and the dominance there is becomes the advertising so no longer do you just become oh we're a really nice little local brewery people want to be big and they want to sell as much as possible so yeah that is part of the reason that lager then became so established and so dominant which you'd think was weird considering how long some lagers take to make and something i didn't mention earlier which i feel a bit sort of you know it's a bit remiss of me but is that lager because of its cooler temperatures of fermentation and because of the way that the yeast works from the bottom of the you know predominantly the bottom of the vessel um actually takes longer to do its job and then longer to clean up any byproducts that it has produced in that period of time in its fermentation so what's the ideal window and then there's the storage lagering period where you actually take it down to a cooler temperature and the maturation period um so historically three six and nine months but generally sort of like three months was considered i I think it became almost like a tradition you just go three months but after all these technological advancements you know came to the fore it changed the way in which people could brew and lager anyway so you could turn those beers around a lot quicker than you could before while still achieving relatively similar profile and obviously on an industrial scale as soon as you start to apply some other forms of sort of brewing science you really can turn them around a lot quicker you can brew at higher gravity and higher pressures and all sorts of other things and we're not going into that right now but it allowed for this huge expansion in the way that you could brew lager because as i say it just seems strange you go oh the, the one thing we want to do is the one thing that should take the bloody longest um, so a lot of breweries still in the Czech Republic keep quite long lagering dates, sometime, some some as long as uh, three to six months. But it doesn't have to be all that long. It all depends on what you're doing. So how is this all sort of affecting Britain at this time? I mean, I know that at some point lager started to dominate in Britain too. Yeah, it did indeed. Um, and it's interesting because something we didn't mention earlier is that there was actually a brewery in the UK from quite early on as a lager brewery. And I say early on, but I think it was the uh, the oldest uh, lager brand in the UK. And I say that, it's it died a death in the year 2000, and that's the Wrexham Lager. But it's been brought back um, in recent years, so they've, they've started to make it again, I think, since 2011. But they were going since 1881. And I think it was also the first time somebody canned... A, a beer in the UK was at Wrexham Lager. Yes, yes, I've definitely read that. So that's, well. you know, the first example of sort of canning. And again, think about how much that's pushed forwards, the sort of sales and distribution of lager, because it's in a small package, it's very easy to move around, and it's easy to store, and it's easy to stack in your fridges it's and easy things. easy to clean up. Back to refrigeration again, Carl von Linde, you know. So, But yeah, I think really lager sort of hit the British market weirdly later on it it did exist there before it was consumed but for some reason it just hit the uh, the british market in the 70s in this sort of the, you know it went from being like taking two percent of the share in the 60s i think 65 to taking up to 20 percent in 1975 so it, you know it, it was 10 percent increase which is massive so this is where we're seeing yeah, the UK is really embracing this style and it's starting to steal market away from traditional ales. Absolutely, but also because of these various different 
inventions and technological developments, a lot of the ale brewers had started to move away from traditional cask ale as well. So they had, you know, it's twofold. And interestingly, out of that movement, sort of the early 70s, you got Camera, uh, the campaign for real ale, um, mm. who were very, very protective over the, what was basically a, were a series of dying styles, but also the skill of looking after traditional casked beer, you know, so the the real ale in a cask. So that is a living product that you had to look after and, and you know, take take your time to maintain and make sure it was a high-quality product rather than just turn into vinegar. Um, so, yeah, so they, they were launched, and basically they were almost in a direct response to keg products. Um, so, yeah, 90% of pubs only served keg beers by that point already. And even in though the lager, 70s? Yeah, and even though lager still was, you know, relatively low level in the in the beer market kegging of ales as well are just swept across the whole of uh, of the uk uh yeah and i i can understand why in a sense because i suppose it's a it it guarantees longevity it stop it, it guarantees um consistency as well in a sense but it does sacrifice some quality in the way it used to be done anyway it would sacrifice some quality yeah well it's non-replicable you can't make the same you know beer taste the same as it does when it comes out of you know like a, a fresh a well-kept cask the same like if you have cask lagers you can't mm. replicate that you know keg lager is great bottle lager is great same with you know lots of real ales in bottles bottle condition real ales but what they were doing is pushing towards that, stick it in a keg and stick it on a bar and pump it full of CO2. And camera was directly, you know, coming coming into sort of... Combat that. Yeah, absolutely. So and it was to, to push that. But to keep that, you know, to keep our strain of thought completely on lager, you know, this is really also what allowed lager into the market is that the UK had already swayed itself into the kegged, product and really a lot of people didn't care whether it was this or this to some degree so you know milds are already dying a death lager is coming in bitters are dying a death lagers coming in all these different sexy beers from afar they start to seem you know they, they they've got the cool they've got the new so 1987 then uh the rhein deemed unlawful to implement on imports by eu so they've decided that because they, because Germany had previously been, what rejecting beers that didn't ad- adhere to their Reinheitsgebot, or they wouldn't. Al- yeah, wouldn't like it's them? a strange one. It was. They said it was not. In, it was. It was not lawful to implement on imports from other countries, due to it being a protectionist. Um, yeah. Law and 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 also in direct violation of. Uh, I think it was it was Article 30 of the Treaty of Rome, which basically said that you couldn't have this sort of protectionist law on products moving around other EU countries. Yeah, you can't impose your opinions on someone else's. No, because they're all in in agreement with the European Court of Law. Exactly. So, yeah, interestingly enough, though, there was a series of different changes then that sort of, again, makes makes the Reinhardt-Gebot sort of seem a bit pointless over a period of time. Next point up is a couple of years later, figure that I think you've dug out, which um, I'd not seen before, but that lager accounted for seventy five percent of the UK beer market. Yes, I did. By eighty nine, I think that's that's remarkable considering that we saw sixty five was two percent of the market. Seventy five, it was 
20. 20, and then 89, it's 75% of the UK So we're market. saying in less than 10 years, it had gone from 20% of the UK market to 75% of the UK market. Yeah, and, and so us being here in the UK and being both British citizens, that is of great interest to us, but also I think for other people to see, because it's dominated a long time in lots of other countries, but as a bastion of ale, as it had been, yeah. To think that it's 75% of the UK beer market only within, you know, less than 30 years but I think a of lot, it being at 2%. But I think a lot of that can be accounted to the fact that um, travel became so much more popular in the 70s and 80s. People started actually going on holidays, foreign holidays. Very much so. And also, as we talked about before, television. Now, televisions weren't just a few people had them and a few people had them in colour. They were now... Nearly everybody most had them, ha- most and had they them, had yeah. them in colour, of course. Um, and so, advertising, obviously, that's a huge one. And we talked about before with you know putting on billboards and buses, but travel. Everybody, most people had cars now, so people were seeing things. You were able to go out. You could put up. You could brand everything on. You know, whatever you, you you think about, it's in the toilets of such and such, and it's yada yada yada. It's on the it's on the, the, it's on the bus, billboards. It's, on, it's yeah. yeah. And so adverts are everywhere and they're completely in your eyeline all the time. You can't escape it. So even, you know, at that point in the 80s, you know, basically we're almost in the cusp of the 90s. They are everywhere. 1990 then, as I say, we're almost there. Well, we're in the 1990s now. We're nearly contemporary. We're almost done. We're We're like, look, we weren't quite born yet, but we're there. Like, oh, you've, put, you've put an age on us now. Everyone thought I was 52. No. <laughs> I know people think you're older than you are, but... I'm not as old as this product, but the Golden Fest beer became a thing in the 1990s. Now, there's a group that effectively decides what what happens at the Oktoberfest, and they were strongly involved in in trying to make sessionability and smashability, quaffability, sinkability the key thing that they moved forward with mm. from 1990 onwards. And they'd obviously probably talked about it for a period of time, but in 1990 they introduced the Golden Fest beer. So no longer than Martin, which may well have been slowly getting watered down in colour to some degree over a period of time. And that's only you know me suggesting that might be the case, and I have no proof of that. So I think there may well have been you know an ever so slight change, but it did then become full force. We're, we're moving on to this beer. It was to try and streamline that body even more, take some of the toasty notes out of it, probably because they realised people didn't really want those delicious beers anymore. They just wanted to go and drink some... Well, because I think that we know very well that Oktoberfest is treated like the piss-up of all piss-ups. Yeah. And people aren't there to enjoy the difference between the different breweries no i mean whether or not you enjoy them which you know i've got to be honest i still do you know you're going if if you're drinking any of the they're made you know most of them are big breweries now as well they're not those little little guys making good you know good quality little stuff you know in their little breweries you know the only one i think that is still truly independent out of all of the Oktoberfest breweries, which we'll talk about in our Oktoberfest episode episode, but munich breweries that are doing making Oktoberfest beer is Augustina, and we were a close call between Augustina Hell, Hellas, and, and Tegensee Hell. Yeah. But we decided, just for the sake of you know not throwing all of the same things at people, we'd go with the Tegensee, and obviously we both have a real soft spot for it as well. But um, that is the Golden Fest beer. 
So to cap off this whole process of everything becoming gold, crystal clear, completely sort of samey the whole way through. I mean, the only one I still think is slightly different with the, the you know, those fast beers is the Hackershaw. But even then, you know, like it's probably not anywhere near as martini and toasty as it once was. So there you have it. Everything is golden. And the only other sort of real moment of change predominantly in the sort of lager world at that point was that the sort of culmination of all of this innovation and stripping back and pairing back in colour and flavour was that Miller went to the sort of nth degree to try and make a beer that was as close in colour and probably consistency and flavour as well to, to water. And they made, I think it was Miller, I think it was just called Clear brand. And so that was like the stupid sort of like final zenith of let's see how much we can strip everything back in 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 color and flavor etc etc yeah so we've actually it's it's gone to the very end of the scale now hasn't it we started off these dark well the dunkles yeah uh we moved into the martins and the viennas yeah and now we've ended up with these golden you know the Fespies, the Golden Wanders, and the Pilsners, yep. Hellas. It really is an evolution, mm. and I think that's why it was so interesting. Where we really wanted to sit down and really focus on lager history, because we're not just talking about it, it, the one product that exists in itself. We're talking about something that has completely changed. It's yeah, gone absolutely, from absolutely yeah. one extreme to the other in its history. Uh, and with all the drama and uh, espionage that goes along with it. I mean, this is it, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, we've we've not even talked about a whole series of different styles and actual moments that, you know, probably are of great interest. But w- what we've really tried to, I think, confront as our main subject matter within this sort of intro to Lager, a bit of a history of the background of it, is that, to, to my mind, it's the it's the evolution, the, the innovation. It's like revolutionary developments in technology, um, science, and advancements through you know education, the ability to brew year round. You know, it's all this in you know invent invention and innovation to to be able to pair everything back to constantly be refining something, putting on even you know a clearer lacquer on, and just giving it this great uh, finesse. That that's why lager has been so successful. The fact it looks great, it smells, it's like this, but it's also so approachable to everybody. And, you know, at the same time, to tackle that, to say that this is exactly what, you know, people have tried to do, is also to go back and say, but there is so much more to lager than just this, you know, this, you know, almost that crazy clear golden finish to it. Um, And, you know, and actually having said that about, you know, with Miller, you'd never, you've not seen that brand, right? No. Because it obviously didn't work. People didn't want to maybe go quite. I mean, they were that. That is like that's the clown pants moment. Somebody's <laughs> gone. That is ridiculous now. Actually, so let's go back a step and just keep golden. Yeah. Because if it's you know if it's golden, it's good. I personally, you know, I think it's a really fascinating sort of subject, and we've really only just started that conversation ourselves. Yeah. Um, but out of pure interest, I was making a list of you know how many different styles and variants on you know various lagers there are. And I, you know, I ended up with a list that was, you know, somewhere in this like 30 to 40 region. Oh, and, you know, you're even now, it's still not finished like, oh, that's it now. It's just Pilsner as the end sort of product. You know, you've still got people making things like India Pale Lagers and Imperial Lagers. These are the sort of next little changes, you know, and they, they tend to sit alongside where the market's going in the ale world as well. So it's, it's very interesting to me that, you know, we've ended up in a position where, particularly with the craft 
beer industry's boom, and you know, you talk about craft ales in particular, you know, like the, the sort of American craft boom, but that all started with lager production again. You know, a country that had been one of the first to sort of adopt lager and then sort of lost it to some degree. And then obviously people think about it as being a lager consuming country. And yet the craft beer movement started with like Anchor Steam, which is, you know, a California common, like it's a it's a it's a it's a type of lager. Yeah. And, you know, Sam Adams with their Boston lager as well. Those are the sort of beers that really have propelled the craft beer movement as well. So it's it's really interesting that it's innately in all of this interwoven into the fabric of modern beer. And before we sign off, we're going to have a little dessert beer to bring us back round to the dark side of things. So what are we drinking now? So we now are drinking uh, Schlenkeler's Eicher, which is their Doppelbock. Um, so it's a strong, a stronger bock even. It's got even more kick than most normal goats could give you. Um, <laughs> And it comes in at 8% alcohol by volume. Is that normal for a Doppelbock? Yeah, yeah, that's that's about right for so Doppelbock. So a Bock would be, what, 5%? Uh, late fives to sort of mid sixes, I think, generally. I might be slightly out with that, but I think that's about there or thereabouts. Um, so realistically, you're looking at slightly... So a Bock is slightly stronger than your Fest beers normally, sometimes in that same sort of bracket. So Fest beers are like 5 Five eight to six three six I think six five at a push, um, so it would be in that sort of that sort of similar bracket and it's you know obviously it's a historically box or a darker beer, so here we have um, Schlenkler's Eicher as I say which uh, differs from a lot of their other beers, its name is the giveaway if you know anything about German um, Eicher so oak. Instead of beech wood, which most of the malt is smoked over at Schlenkler, this one's smoked over oak instead. So it's got a slightly more, for my mind, particularly with this, the strength of the alcohol as well, it's a lot more refined notes. It's more sort of blue cheese and like tiramisu uh, in flavour with slightly sort of, you know, underpinning of sort of cocoa, which you don't have so much with, say, their, their, their classic Martin, which is a little bit more dominant than that. That smokiness is a lot uh, a lot more aggressive, I think. So it's a little bit more rounded. And so I think it's a very, very, very beautiful beer. So this is here instead of, if you like your dessert, it's your tiramisu. But if you'd rather be a cheese board person, then it's your blue cheese. It's like a smoke, <laughs> it's a blue cheese with a cigar. Something so. for <laughs> A little cappuccino beer. on the side. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a delicious drop just to round out, you know, what a great experience this has been, you know. And um, thank you, first of all, for tuning in, having us uh, chew your ear off about the history of lager. Yeah, we hope everybody's learned something new or at least had a giggle along the mm. way. You might have unremembered something old. Yes. Uh, you know, push out that useless information, you know, replace it with our voices <laughs> and our elevator pitches for films. And uh, yeah. yeah, enjoy your beers. Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. Get out. Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. If you have any beer recommendations, uh, suggestions for episodes, or you just fancy getting in touch, then please email us at tatbpod at gmail.com. If you use social media, then please follow us on Twitter at Time at the Bar Pod or Instagram at Time at the Bar Pod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>